Hey there, folks. Alex Lokes here, and welcome back to the Classic Camera Revival. And we've made it. Yes, we are at the end of the dumpster fire that was 2020, and we are certainly hoping for a much better 2021, because hope is the only thing we have, because no one's figured out how to kill it yet. But anyways, we had an absolutely wonderful year. We had some great guests on our show, and we talked about a lot of topics. But like any topics, we can't get to everything in every episode. So it's time to crack the fridge, pull out that cold turkey left over from your Christmas dinner, and let's dig in. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival. Coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Okay, so this year um, we are going to be talking this uh, this episode. Like I said, we're going to be talking about those um, little things that sort of fell by the wayside, got tucked into the Tupperware, and shoved to the back of the fridge. So we are going to start with Mr. Bill Smith and his discovery of the Minolta X700. We've talked about the X700, and um, I have this weird, uncanny ability of getting them for free. Nice. Usually what happens is a friend, uh, an acquaintance, or almost strangers say, hey, I know you shoot film cameras. Would you like something that my Uncle Fred had? And generally, I'm just sitting here going, okay, yeah, well, what do you got? Ooh, an X700. And the X700s, uh, they're, uh, they're one of those cameras that it was introduced in 1981. Minolta was um, kind of like, the Minolta XD series, the XD11, the XD7 in Europe, and the XD in Asia, it'd been out for a few years, and they're kind of like realizing that people are getting a little price conscious with their camera gear. Uh, outside the pro camera market and the xd11 was sort of again it was all metal construction it had a vertical copal shutter and they, they and minolta was looking at it and it's like people wanted something slightly lighter and they were looking at what canon was up to with the a series with the a1 uh by then the a1p and then the a1 which was in production for a few years uh, which is again plastic construction so minolta looked at that and said okay we need to save some money so they went to an all-plastic outer housing. Uh, even the advanced lever is plastic. Uh, there are plastic parts inside. Not the saying that plastic is bad. Now, granted, I wouldn't drop the camera, but from terms of long-term durability, the X700, like I have two that were built in the 80s, and they're getting on for, they're probably like late 30s um, in terms of age. Uh, they're surprisingly durable. The line was introduced in 1981, and surprisingly, the X700 had a long production run. They were made up until the very late 1990s. Uh, production, of course, shifted to China at somewhere along the way, kind of like the same legacy of the Pentax K1000. Um, Minolta sort of tinkered with the camera design over the years in terms of internals. But again, what was great about Minolta was uh, what people love about the X700 is is a great entry point because you had manual uh, aperture priority, shutter priority, or I think shutter priority and program mode. So you got a couple different flavors to choose from. 
depending on your comfort level. Uh, it also had a revised a lens system they call it by then the minolta md mm-hmm. and if you're using the x700 they really liked you to use the M- minolta md mount lenses which was you know just they're slightly later versions of the md roker but it was just so you can use the full program capability of the camera the camera took two silver oxide energizer 357 batteries which you can literally find anywhere any uh, shopper's drug mart, any Rite Aid, uh, Walgreens, uh, supermarket, general store, if you're lucky. It pays to have a few extras because unfortunately with this camera, if the battery dies, the camera becomes a paperweight. It is manual focus. You can also use uh, the older Minolta MC Roker lenses on it. You will lose the shutter priority and program mode, but you can still use that camera. Uh, it came with a really super uh, bright viewfinder, like the uh, its slightly lesser expensive cousin, the X570. You can set it on aperture priority and basically forget about it. It's just like, okay, I want to run with f8 or f- on a day like today, a bright winter, early winter's day. You can set it to f11, and it'll just shoot. And if you're shooting 100 ISO film, it'll be 250 ISO all the way in bright sunshine. No nice. problem. What to look for? The do capacitors do tend to die, but it's, I'm told, a rather easy fix. Uh, mm-hmm. Not one I'm not sure I want to try at home if you're a butterfingers, but the more crazy people who are out there who have to do, do, do it yourself fixes. Again, the cameras are plentiful. I have been given two of them, both of them are in pretty much mint. Nice. Like, I mean, they just look like they were never used. And what I love about them is they're light. Uh, you can use them as the sort of no tears, no regrets travel camera. So if you wind up losing it or it breaks, oh, well. No big deal. You're not going to cry over it. Well, maybe the lens, but, you know, uh, the body itself, it's not the end of the world. Um, there once one little Achilles heel with it. You have to sort of... Uh, it won't show you your true shutter speed, I believe, in the viewfinder. You have to kind of look up a little bit, then look down. That's just the one little Achilles heel, and that was sort of a, a sort of a leftover from the XGM and a few. I think the Minolta had a few auto exposure bodies in the late seventies. I can't remember off the top of my head. Stupid me. My brothers had one or two of them over the years. Again, they were designed that if you wanted to meter, you had to meter in aperture priority, then go back to manual, which is a bit of a pain in the butt. I don't know why Minolta mm-hmm. did that. Uh, they had their the reasons. But again, the big uh, the big advantage of the system is a batteries are plentiful as all get out. That bright viewfinder screen and access to all that beautiful Minolta glass. Oh yeah, uh, an old friend of mine, he uh, was doing film photography as an elective in his university course, and he had gotten a Canon AE1P, which promptly died on him. Mm-hmm. And as a replacement, I gave him an X700, and it just worked. Yeah, and the thing is, X700s aren't, if you wind up having to buy one, they're not that no. expensive. Like, probably $150 Canadian gets you that and a lens. Yeah. And it's usually a Minolta MD 50F2, or if you're Which really are lucky, fantastic lenses. Or the 517, which yeah. is even nicer. Yep. 
speaking of um, automatic, um, the camera I have today. Now, we did do an episode on Olympus, very beginning of our season, our season opener. And due to internet troubles at home, I was unable to join. I was, at that point, fairly fresh into the Olympus system, thanks to... Mr. Bill Smith here and enabling is complete. gas. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the Olympus OM2N. Now, I like this camera. I like the system. I like how they work. And I found one for a fantastic deal on eBay and bought it because it was A, in Canada, and B, it was under $100. And it came with a lens and it came with the Winder 2. Now, the one thing that the person said is that the light meter didn't work. Well, I've listened to enough episodes of the Film Photography Podcast and listened to Leslie extol the virtues of these cameras that I had no problem that I could fix it, right? Clean out the compartment, put in a battery, hit the uh, check reset switch, bam, would work. Not quite. There was something seriously messy with this camera in the sense that it was stuck on automatic mode, which meant it shot and metered fine, no problems. The display in the viewfinder was stuck in the manual setting. Uh-oh. Well, I shot it for a bit, really enjoyed it. Metering is dead on accurate, thanks to how it meters. It has two meters in it. So it uses a pair of CDS cells for manual metering, which does typical through-the-lens TTL metering. And then it has a pair of silicon blue cells that takes direct film plane metering thanks to a digital camouflage pattern on the front of the shutter. And the only thing that it reminds me of is CADPAT the Canadian disruptive pattern that's used by um, our military. And it's accurate. It's also fast. Like, the lens shuts, the meter will take that reading and automatically set near shutter speed. It's awesome. Just, just absolutely awesome. So I ended up sending mine off to the fine folks at Service Camera Pro in Quebec City. And this was the first time I've actually used them. And the camera, it... it cost a fair amount to fix but i had also f- gotten from a co-worker another om2 in even worse condition so i sent it along as a parts camera so they didn't have to source any separate parts for it and it needed a full overhaul there was some electronic problems with it so but now it works and it is absolutely fantastic in fact i like it so much i'm doing a 52 roll project with it in the new year. Um, 52 rolls of Fomapan 400 film with any OM lens I have, and I have quite a few now. They, You can get them for fairly cheap on the used market, and good ones too. you got to be careful, though. The thing with Zoico glass, the more common stuff, like the 518s, the 2835s, yep. uh, the 135 3.5, the macro lenses, I think 35.28, all those are pretty reasonable. It's mm-hmm. when you start getting into the more exotic stuff, like the 35 F2, oh, yeah. that's where it starts to go up. Yep. Even the 51.4s have started popping because of people popping them onto an adapter, and then yep. off you go on the on a Sony yeah. Alpha A7. Um, 
But yes, it's like the Zoico glass is super nice glass, and I've yeah. been shooting Olympus for ages, and I'm glad I'm not the only Olympus shooter in our little tribe now. <laughs> and another nice thing is that the um, parts camera actually came with the um, oh yes, the uh, plug the for the uh, cover winder. So I actually now shoot this mostly without the winder because the winder is just I find it a little awkward. Well, it's funny because I was recently gifted another OM winder from a, I guess you could say, a friend of the podcast. And it's just like, well, that's nice. It's probably going to go to the pile with all the other winders, which (laughs) I've never had good luck with them. They tend to die on me. And I kind of, I'm okay without the winder because, uh, again, they're, as Alex mentioned, they're just, they just feel right. And especially if you're someone who does a lot of hiking, um, yeah, an Olympus OM system is something you really should strongly consider because, A, the metering, especially if the OM2 ends, it's a sophisticated metering system. Uh, you're not going to get a bad exposure. No. You'd have to really be dumb at it to get a bad exposure. And the thing is, it's light. You can run with a... I could probably run if, I, if you're going, say, a long extended trip up and you're in say in a Gonquin park and you're hiking for a couple of days and camping, you know, uh, 50 to 28, uh, probably a aftermarket 80 to 200 lens. Yeah. Uh, or even the Zoico 60 to 200. If you F four, if you can find it and a macro lens, you're set. Yeah. And it's not going to take up too much space. Nope. And it's unlike say, a can say a Canon Pro body kit of the same vintage, which is would be the Canon new F1, and a whole boatload of FD glass. It's going to take up more space. It's going to weigh more. Same thing with even the Nikon Nikkor glass. It's going to take up more space and weigh more. And when you're doing say a 14 kilometer hike in a day, yeah, that OM system is going to be your friend. Absolutely. Okay, and um, James has the uh, only lens um, that's being talked around today. And if you shoot any of the Pentax 6.7s, you will know this lens. You will have this lens. And if you don't have it, you will want it. Very, very true. Yeah, good summary. Um, yeah. What can I say about this lens? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what everybody kind of thinks about with this lens and its image quality. And I guess the hard thing when you when you start talking about image quality, there's no really no quantitative measurement for image quality or or how good bokeh is or you know I'm not even going to get into the overuse of bokeh because that's a whole other episode. Um, but it, it's it's difficult to describe it um, uh, from an image quality uh, standpoint. Um, uh, in terms of uh, I don't. I don't even think you need to justify it. If you've seen sample images of this lens in portrait portrait work or any type of uh, shallow depth of field type of work that you're doing, um, it, it's it's spectacular. And you know, in terms of sharpness, um, it's incredibly sharp when you stop it down around its sweet spot. In terms of sharpness, sweet spot that is, which is f eight f eleven. And, you know, I, as a photographer, I kind of think that um, uh, sharpness is, a, is not a very good measure of photographic uh, quality. I think a lot of um, particularly professional, professional photographers don't really focus too much on lens sharpness. It's more about image quality as a whole, um, I think. Um, 
you know, after some time, it's it's hard to distinguish uh, um, the quality of the 105 2.4 to some other uh, sort of, um, I hate to say competitive or competitor lenses because they're really not competitor lenses. But if you if you look at some of the other sort of powerhouses in in that market, like the Nikon 85 uh, 1.2, um, some of the modern Canon lenses, the uh, uh, sorry, the 85 1.4 rather, and then some of the modern um, uh, Canon lenses, which are you know like the the 85, they have a, an 85 1.2 big glass lens. Um, this lens goes neck and neck and I, in fact I actually find some of the out of focus areas a little bit more pleasing with the 105 uh, 2.4 um, and it does take it does it does show in certain um, cases you can see a slight bokeh swirl that you would get out of the um, uh, Helios 44.2 um, not as pronounced as that but very very slight so it, it, it can be in really really interesting um, uh, sometimes, you know, in terms of uh, usability, uh, close focusing is around um, three feet um, or so. Um, and the um, magnification factor is about uh, 0.13. So it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty close. Um, you can get an, ex you can get extension tubes, uh, for these lens, for this lens, uh, for the, for the Pentax system. Um, if you wanted to shoot more, uh, close up portraits and things like that, because the, the, uh, uh, the focusing distance is, is fairly big at around, uh, three feet or so. Um, in terms of uh, field of view, it's about uh, 46 degrees, um, which is quite similar to uh, a 50 millimeter, um, 35 millimeter format, um, uh, or 50 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter format. Um, so it, it's fairly close to standard given the six by seven um, format that you're shooting it with. And to get that kind of out of focus um, area, uh, shooting at quote unquote the normal range, um, is really, really cool. And there isn't, isn't really another lens that kind of does that at that focal length. So, um, again, that's one of the more attractive things about, uh, about the lens. And that's why they're, you know, prices are kind of going up on them. Uh, in terms of construction, um, nine bladed aperture, um, very, very soft. And, 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 and the re, and I think that really, um, complements or allows it to achieve that out of focus um, uh, blur if you will because of that very round aperture hole with those nine blades you know it's very very smooth bokeh it's 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 even when it's stopped down like uh, you know I don't typically shoot it I use it for portraits so I don't really shoot it generally above f4 uh, f4.5 5.6 I usually stay away from um, but when you do um, when you're in bright areas and you get it um, you know you know f8 f11 you still are getting some half decent out of focus areas um, you know unlike the majority of the other um, Pentax 6.7 lenses this one actually takes a 67 millimeter thread mount um, filter uh, which is kind of good and it does have both a screw in and bayonet uh, mount on the lens as well there are a couple different versions of the of the lens um uh, I have the newer uh, version, um, but uh, both versions, um, uh, the older version has a, a bit more of a, a metal barrel construction, and the new one is a little bit more plasticky, but um, it's still, they're, they're solid, solid uh, lenses or boat anchors, um, you know, and, <laughs> and zombie uh, defense artillery. You know, what can I say about it? it, it it's an incredible lens. Uh, shoot it wide open. Um, you shoot it wide open, you'll uh, you'll get that 
tiny little noticeable swirl in the background. It, you know, it adds a little bit of kind of whimsical sort of feel to your image, I suppose. And, you know, some of that is kind of intrinsic to a lot of folks. Um, you know, like, what can I tell you? It's difficult to give it an, an objective assessment. All I can tell you is if you're in the Pentax 6.7 system, beg, borrow, steal, buy, whatever, try this lens. It'll probably live on your camera um, more so than any other lens. Um, and at, at, at f2.4 on a 6x7 negative, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, an incredible technology for 1969. Um, you know, I guess, hey, we put men on the moon back then too. But uh, um, if I had only one lens for my 6.7, this would be it. That, that's the best way yeah. I could put it. Nice. John, you have one of the best-kept, well-known secrets in uh, film photography that you've been exploring a lot of this year, and that would be ultra-fine extreme. Yes. Um, it's such a secret that anyone listening to the show, I'm sorry, we now have to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, no, no, shoot the film instead. So, yes, as I said, I'm going to talk about the ultra-fine films, like the Extreme 400, but also the 100, and... One of the trends we're seeing, it, it seems, that a lot of the films that are either being introduced, reintroduced, they tend to be expensive. But looking at you, Fuji, with your uh, across two, does the two stand for twice the price? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of the, you know, it's, it's good to see films coming back, but they are expensive, and that really sort of sucks. I'm happy to, to talk about the Ultrafine Extreme because, just trying to get to my notes... Um, it is inexpensive. It is not cheap in the pejorative sense, but it is a film where you save a lot of money, but I feel you're not making any compromise when, when you use it. Now, it's, it's sold by uh, an outfit called Photo Warehouse, and uh, who makes it, who actually manufactures it, is a Fairly well-kept secret. There are, there are theories. There are theories. If you take a look at the boxes and the fonts being used, it uses um, Futura Medium and Extra, which you will recognize from a well-known UK film manufacturer. Harmon, we're, we're looking at you. and We're accusing you. <laughs> no, we're not. And we're again, thanking you. Yes. We are thanking you and honestly don't know where Ultrafine gets these, if these are just end of rolls that didn't make it all the way in. I'm not sure if it's a cubic grain film or a T-grain film. It's, it's classic. I, believe. I think it's cubic, yeah. yeah. I believe it's cubic film. And again, there are all sorts of theories yeah. on what it is, whether it's a custom emulsion just for Photo Warehouse or it's... Something else, it's not Kentmere, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely not Kentmere. But what it is is a film that has a, uh, a beautiful tonality. I, I find the way it handles highlights is, is great. It has just the right amount of contrast. For me, it's just, it's, I want to use the term middle of the road, but use it as a, uh, as a superlative or a compliment in this case, because middle of the road is good. Uh, it's not an extreme film, except in the name of any way uh, at all. I love the tonality, and my, my photography the last little while has sort of been marked by simplicities, uh, cutting down on the number of emulsions, cutting down on developers, cutting down on the gear, and, uh, and this film will, uh, 
will be one of the the two or three films that'll make up ninety percent of my shooting. I think uh, going forward, particularly in medium format. So, hey, you know, save some money, try this stuff. I think you'll like it. And you don't have to order it directly from Photo Warehouse or Ultrafine online. Our friends at Downtown Camera actually carry it on the regular yeah they tend to sell out very quickly in fact um, it's quite popular it is it's not so much the more it's still a gem it's not so much hidden anymore no sadly no and i unfortunately our friends at downtown camera don't seem to quite order enough (laughs) Mm. it's like okay look at your replenishment add an extra 20 percent because that stuff will move and unfortunately my last physical visit to downtown camera they only had two rolls of Ultrafine Extreme 400 left in 35mm 30, uh, in stock. It was like, I wanted to have... Was that, was that recent? I wonder if they're still... Like, a lot of the stores are still um, uh, experiencing supply issues because of COVID. I don't know. And that's, that's going to be a rolling question as, as time goes on in terms of uh, shipping and... Uh, cross-border shipments uh we won't go into that there uh i love ultrafine extreme 400 i've shot with it in 35 millimeter and it looks gorgeous mm. especially pushed and yes. I, my go-to developer for that is hc 110 yep i do it at the bo- close to box at five minutes flat i get i get gorgeous shots i pushed it to nine minutes to 1600 HC 110 Dilution B. Say that really fast after a few glasses of uh, Highland Single Malt. Uh, and again, you get a really nice. So it's it's a good all. That one is a good all around film for I guess you could say uh, Canada from about I don't know October to the uh, mid May, and then just switch to the hundred ISO film from there on in. Well, I think we can solve the supply issue. We lied. It's a horrible film. You'll be disappointed. <laughs> don't, shoot don't shoot it. If you live in Toronto and shop at Downtown Camera, yeah, this is not the film for you. Yes, yes. <laughs> don't, don't buy it. You'll, 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 we'll be much happier if you don't buy it. Absolutely. So we can buy more of it for ourselves. Bingo. Now, Bill, you set out on a journey to find the sweet spot for Berger Pancro 400. Yeah, Berger, Berger or Berger Pancro 400. Uh, Berger is a, a French firm, and uh, they're best known for their photo pa- high-end photo papers in both resin and uh, Barta, Barta paper or fiber paper. Um, and in the past, they've also sold film. Now, previously, the film was respooled uh, Orwo N74, uh, but uh, somewhere along the way, Ber- Berger or Berger, uh, depending on how you pronounce it, maybe they will reach out. Berger. Berger. Uh, came Much out with like Panker Tar-Jay. 400 in sheet film. Now, the sheet film is, a bit, again, they went came out in 4x5, 5x7, 8x10, and 12x18. And more recently, they decided we're going to go after the smaller formats, which is now 120 and 35 millimeter. And... Uh, what's best known about this film, it's a dual-layer silver halide emulsion, which is basically silver bromide and silver iodide, which so gives you that just gorgeous tonality. Now, I shot one roll when it first came out. I think James gifted me one. I ran it through, my, I think, my Minolta XC7 up in Allura. And the tonality was gorgeous, but it was grainy. And I was yes. like, ooh. And then it's sort of like, okay, I'll... 
left it alone for a couple of years and I decided, okay, I want to crack the sweet spot of this film. Like I've shot at 120. It looks gorgeous. I shot it through my brother's Texas Leica and it's like, it just hits you straight in the face with a two by four. It's just so to the tonality, especially in a sort of mid March sunshine where it's just contrasty light. And I was down on the beaches with the life, uh, the uh, art installations on the, on the sand. So 35 millimeter, I said, okay. Um, so I grabbed 20 rolls and I burned through, I think almost half of them now. And uh, again, it, it, the green is there, but it, green is good. Now what's beautiful about this film, again, it's coming back to it, is the tonality. If you're in a situation where other films may not be handled, the, the super extremes uh, that Bur- the Pancro 400 does, like I've taken in hiking along the Bruce Trail, and you're dealing with tiny spots of bright sunshine, then lots of shadow, and it can handle that. I my go-to developer with it is HC110 Dilution B for nine minutes. I have tried it in D76 one to one for about eighteen minutes, which is a long time. Back and forth, ever so carefully. When you scan it. And again, I'm using a Epson V600 flatbed scanner with uh, ViewScan, the latest version of ViewScan. Um, yeah, there is grain, but that's not bad. The real true test is when you go to print it. And I have made some prints from 35 millimeter nags of Pancro 400, and it's like, oh wow, this it's it's it, it, this is resin coated paper. I should try it on fiber paper, and it'll even be more blown away. Uh, this is a nice film. Now, is it? For every purpose, would I try and go push it? I haven't shot pushed it at all. I have seen a formula for Rodinol 1 to 25. I have shot it at box speed and processed at Rodinol 1 to 25. The results did not come out like the review on Emulsive. Mine results were a little more um, gritty. See, I, I actually really like... I know it sounds weird for a film that has a lot more grain than what you're used to if you shoot Delta, T-Max, 400, speed films. There is a lot more grain. and grain is good. Yes, grain Just is... Just Gordon Gecko. Grain is good. Grain is well, good. Well, I, I kind of liken it to music. It's sort of like Delta 400 and T-Max 400 is Taylor Swift's backing band. <laughs> They're going to show up on time. They're going to hit all the notes because they know damn well Taylor's going to rip the new one into them after the show in the debrief. Yep. Pancro 400 is the hives. <laughs> Swedish garage rock at its finest. <laughs> and I, that's oh, why I love Pancro that's, 400. That's a and, good if analogy. and I want to shoot more of it with portraiture because I want to see what I can get out of that. Sadly, I, I got I to gotta top up my, uh, my supply and mm-hmm. find more willing. Yeah. Uh, well, I I love the film. I I think it's, I I think your your synopsis of it is is bang on. I love shooting it. Um, I backlit portraiture, because the way that film handles highlights, I, I I'm assuming it's the double layer. Uh, yeah. The two it's emulsions. A, it's, a du- it's, a, yeah. it's the dual silver layer emulsion. Yeah, it, it gives it the magic. The, the silver content and and the uh, dynamic range you get out of it. I find the grain actually quite pleasing. Mm-hmm. I think when you're shooting backlit high contrast scenes you kind of want some grain in there yeah, like yeah. you don't want a t-max 100 kind of no. look or an acros kind of look um you know like i use those films more so for open shade or a little bit flatter light and yep. you want to nail exposure and yep. you want smooth tonality 
But, I mean, I love the kind of, for lack of a better word, the crunch yep. you, you get out well, of, uh, of uh, uh, Pancro 400. I shot uh, an AMG, a Mercedes AMG, uh, I believe it's a Cooper, I can't remember if it's a Cooper or a Roadster on downtown Oakville early on in the pandemic. And it was just how three-dimensional looked. Mm-hmm. Yes. I can't even quite remember which camera. It's I got used. depth. Like, the film has a lot of depth to it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I, That's I why used... I love it when hiking, because, again, it has that sort of feeling, you're on the trail with me. Uh, for, for sort of landscape work, it actually it works really nice. And I kind of like that, because it can handle different... And, I'm, again, I'm trying, I've been sort of... Like, I've tried it in Rodinal... Not my favorite. I've done it in D76. I've done it in HC110. I do want to try it in Pyrocat HD. I was going to say, I I stopped souping it in HC110. Um, Not that I was getting bad results, but I was just blown away with the results I was getting in Pyrocat. Mm. Yeah, um, that's the developer I'm going to be experimenting more with in 2021. I I think uh, once you see the results you get out of Pyrocat, in other words, I'm ordering this film by the skid load, is it what yeah. you're implying? <laughs> you're you're, you're going to be very pleased with it. Okay, well, that's good to well, know. Well, speaking of Pyrocat, hey, there John! Okay, Pyrocat HD. Now, um, I'll give just like a thumbnail synopsis on what a staining developer is and the history. Like one, this is a rabbit hole. You could spend a couple of hours oh, yeah. going into it. But basically, the concept of, a, uh, of, the, of the staining developer goes back to almost the dawn of photography. 1851, yes. Scott Archer, the inventor of the wet plate process, used this, a, uh, a staining developer uh, for his first uh, wet plate. So it has been around. It's called pyro because it's short for pyrogallol or uh, pyrocatechin, catechin. I can't pronounce it. I just use it. Um, and the way these developers work, in a nutshell, is that they apply a stain that is proportional to the amount of silver on, on a negative. So the negatives, when you're done developing, they will have a brownish or a brownish black tinge to them. It depends on the film and the exact variant of, uh, of a staining developer that uh, you use. Now, the staining developer, the, the first iteration back in the 19th century, they fell out of favor after a while, like in the early 20th century, because they were difficult to use. They would not. They would not stay stable very long. Uh, you had. They would only stay in solution if they were an acid. They were tricky to use. It was difficult to get rock solid, reliable, repeatable results. So they sort of ended up as an historical anachronism. Although people like Edward Weston still he oh, he yeah. loved it. He swore by it and continued to uh, to use it. But then in uh, the early 1990s, there was a resurgence there, uh, of a more modern stage uh, stain developer. Uh, I think it was the Pyro PMK was the first one that came back. Yep. But then in 1999, a guy named uh, Sandy King created uh, Pyrocat uh, HD. And it's, it's an amazing developer. It, has, it doesn't have as many of the, the drawbacks that the, you know, the old old-fashioned uh, pyro mm-hmm. formulas do. Now, Pyrocat uh, HD, like all the pyro developers, is a very high-dilution, one-shot developer. So yep. typically, you'd have, and it's two solutions, so for py- Pyrocat HD is two solutions, so you have one part of solution A, one part of solution B, two 100 parts of water, use it once, and, and you throw it out. Yep. 
And the reason why this stuff is so popular is, first of all, it's a compensating developer. Cue the compensation jokes. Have we, have, have we missed any this season? I don't think so. And so by, by that, you know, you'll get lots of shadow detail without blocking up the highlights. That's right. And I think, like at least for me, when I use it, the way it treats uh, highlights is what draws me to the, uh, this developer. Um, it's, you know, there's always more detail you can get out of a, of a highlight from a, a Pyrocat uh, HD negative. Um, and just the, the total range is amazing. I use it mainly with two different films, Ilford HP5 Plus, yep. and the, actually the, uh, the Ultrafine Extreme 400 that uh, we spoke about uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, both of these films, the most popular time on massive dev chart, it results in a one-stop uh, pull or one-stop. Uh, you need one generally. Stop more. Yeah. So, like I shoot, I use the the exposure index two hundred time for both HP five plus and yep. uh, and ultra. Well, the ultra extreme that's the only time there is, uh, but they're both. I just love the results. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was out recently, High Park in Toronto. It was six thirty in the morning on a brilliantly sunny day. And I was, you know, shooting in a forest, you know, so you can imagine the contrast situation. But uh, because I, because the combination of the Extreme 400, which already has a nice total range, and the uh, the Pyrocat HD, I was like, it's one of my favorite pictures of the year. Was from that, was from that, and a lot of it's because the Pyrocat HD allowed the shafts of sunlight not to block the, the oh, highlights. Yeah. So. It is my go-to combination. Now, there are a couple of downsides. First of all, don't drink it. No, it's, it's, it's incredibly poisonous. toxic. Not yeah. as toxic as PMK Pyro. That's yeah, yeah. one of the plus sides of PyroCat HD is that it, it lowered the toxicity a little, <laughs> but not much. No. Yes. Um, if, if you're mixing this from powder, uh, you need ventilation. Yep. And you want to be wearing gloves. And a respirator, and like a definitely. proper one, not, not just your average N95 mask. Yes, and not a cloth mask. No. This is Channel a, Walter White. This, this, is, this is not COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, this is something you don't mess around with. The, the, other, um, the other downside, although there is you know, there's a way around it, is that it's longevity. If you use the basic version, or like the standard vanilla version of Pyrocat HD... Even your stock solution is only good for a year, so yeah. you want to be you want to plan on using it regular. And because it's such a high dilution, it can take a while to go through. Mm-hmm. However, there is the thing. There's a variant called Pyrocat HD Glycol, yep, which uses glycol instead of uh, everyone's favorite H2O to mix with. And whereas the original version is only good for a year, if you get the glycol version, the stock solution is good for three years. So um, if you're not sure how often you're going to shoot it, um, I would suggest going with the, going with the glycol. Yeah. And the last, the last thing I'll mention, I don't think it's a huge downside. You just have to be patient. The development times with this developer can be longer than, like, we're not talking HC110 short Hmm. development times well that's why i like using it with uh, hp5 and hp5 at 200 is my go-to for using pyrocat hd in fact i'm doing a project on railroad architecture next shooting it next year releasing it 2022 
And again, it'll all be shot on 4x5, HP5 at 200 and PyroCAD HD. And even at the 1 plus 1 plus 100 dilution, you're only 9 minutes. which that's, is That's actually pretty good. Which is pretty darn short. Another film I like it with is RPX25, and it's 12 minutes. And you can shoot it at box speed. And that's, again, one good thing about PyroCAD HD over the older PMK Pyro is that there's a lot more box speed times for PyroCAD HD. You were losing um, film speed with PMK Pyro. So Tri-X uh, 320, you'd have to shoot it at 250 and so on. So what would Burger Pancro be in PyroCAD HD? Um, shoot it at 200, nine minutes. Just okay. use the HP five times. Okay. Matt Mirage taught me that one. I'm okay. going to have to try the uh, combination with uh, the Parkhead HD and the RPX 25. 12 I minutes. Because I, I, I found with the RPX 25, it is very, very easy to block highlights mm-hmm. in that film. It so. does a really good job with that. And I'll make sure I include one of my images mm-hmm. of um, the uh, FK-16 um, World War One German field gun here in Milton that I shot on 4x5. Just absolutely fantastic. So to wrap up that, uh, the, the Parkhead HD, be careful, but it's an amazing developer. One last question. Can you use that all across all formats, like with 35 mil all the way up to large formats? Yes. Yes. And in fact, that was one of the, uh, the developing factors, pardon the pun, for Parkhead HD, because some of the older formulations, they worked best with sheet film. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you started getting into things like Jobo processors and roll film agitation, you would get unevenness. Yes, uh, it wasn't. You didn't. You didn't get that repeatability of results. Yep. That's the holy grail. But the Pyrocat HD, no problem to use it. N- no format. problem at all. The only the only film that I shoot and have to use constant agitation with is uh, FP4, and you shoot it at sixty four, and then Pyrocat HD. And again, it's an under ten minute um, developing time. And mm. again, amazing results. And it's definitely one that if you know the zone system, practice the zone system, it is the developer to use because of its compensating nature. I find it um, very much a magic bullet. If I find a film a little too grainy and I want to maintain sharpness and drop the grain a little bit, tame it a little, PyroCAD HD is the way to go. Another developer that I found that does that is Adox FX39. Now, if you are in North America, you've probably never heard of it. Really, the only Adox developer you know about is Rodinal. They took on the Rodinal name after Agfa lost it. So Adox can use the Rodinal name. Originally, it was Adenol, but now it's back to being Rodinal. So I was bored browsing um, the Argentix website and came across this. And another place where I'd heard it what mentioned when I wrote a review on Kodak Extol, someone actually made a comment, oh, have you ever done ADOX FX39? I'd never heard of this. Well, when I haven't heard of a developer, there's two places I go to see if I can buy it. The first is Freestyle, but their shipping is awful. <laughs> mostly because the courier companies they use are awful. Um, And the other one is our good friend Jacques in uh, Quebec, 
and argentix.ca and sure enough he had adox fx39 2 it's the same as the original stuff it just it has a longer shelf life the original stuff you really even in stock solution it was really only six months whereas the 39 2 has that extra preservation in it i believe it uses glycol as well to um it's again a full bottle sealed will last a couple years open will last six months to a year so it's really good in that way um it's it's fairly universal which means you have um, a set of three different dilutions you can use it with and it's the same time for most films which means that if you have a short amount of time and you want to process say a roll of FOMA 100 and Acros 100, you can do them both at the same time if they ha- because again, it's the same time, same dilution across a lot of films. It does amazing work. Um, one of the things that I tried it out on was Ilford SFX 200, which is like most 200 speed films, a lot more grainy than what you think you'd get. Did an amazing job with that loves fuji acros now i've only shot it on the original used it on the original acros haven't done it on acros 2 but again there's so much similarity between the two there wouldn't be much of a difference it does an amazing job again with uh, fomo 100 and cosmo photo mono 100 now i've done it with the 1 to 9 dilution i've also done it with the lower dilution 1 to 12 and either way, it does a great job. You really don't need to go into that lower dilution unless you want to increase the amount of um, increase the number of films you can do with a single bottle. It only comes in 500 milliliters, so even at one to nine, you are gone within about 10 rolls of film. So you can double it by going with the lower dilution. It's not a specialty developer. Um, it might be rare here in North America, a little hard to come by, but for general purpose developing, it is fantastic. If you don't want to store a huge bottle of Xtol, a huge bottle of D76, and don't want to worry about the syrupness, uh, syrupiness of HC110, Rodinol is far too toxic, this will basically do it all for you, and it doesn't take up much space. Again, um, I don't think Jacques will get... Jacques should have some in stock. He's getting it back in October. But if you can handle a long wait, you can order it from Germany. Photo Impex carries it and has a lot easier access to it because it is produced in Germany um, by ADOX directly. Actually, fun fact, Photo Impex and ADOX are the same people. Yes, yes. And I love... uh, I've 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 worked with their black and white papers. I've shot the old Adox CHS one hundred. Mm-hmm. I'm eagerly awaiting. Hopefully the, the the new version hits North America at some point in thirty five millimeter. Well, um, in full disclosure to our listeners, you're not hearing this till December. We're actually recording it in early August. I have ordered some of the CHS one hundred. Two and the Adox Silver Max film from Photo Impex, and it is slowly making its way over here. The tracking has been updated since it was at Frankfurt, 
Um, and it's going by DHL, which means it'll probably get handed off to Canada Post once it hits hits here. Again, the tracking number went into the Canada Post app, and it seemed to accept it as a as a valid tracking number. So, yeah. who knows? Matter of can- of uh, Canada Customs now. Yeah. Yeah. See, well, it's CBSA, and I, I've shot the Silver Max and and used the Silver Max developer. Mm-hmm. Great film. Um, yeah, I, think I, I have Villa Roll once. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I have back. I have both the CHS one hundred two and Silver Max film and the Adox HR fifty up for film reviews, along with the um, Silver Max developer and the HR dev up for reviews uh, in the new year. So, awesome. in well, general, great. I agree great with stuff. you. I, like you got me onto the um, uh, FX thirty nine, and um, man, that stuff makes Across sing. The mm. original Across. I haven't tried. I've not actually even shot the new Across yet. I, <laughs> I refuse to do it until my stockpiles <laughs> dwindle makes a bit. But um, I mean, I'll take I another twenty years. Ten twenty years. But. Uh, you know, I've always I love Across. Don't get me wrong; it, it is my probably my favorite hundred speed film. Uh, but it, it does lack a little bit of contrast. But the FX thirty nine really brings the contrast um, up a little bit on that film, and it's it's just it's beautiful. I, I definitely I, I would recommend uh, that uh, um, FX thirty nine two with Across. Mm-hmm. Now you have a developer here that. Um is uh, also does an amazing job yeah, with it, Acros, and that's Ilford Perceptal, yes. the slower cousin to Microfin. Uh, yes, correct. Um, and um, the uh, again, I think it's one of those uh, sort of sleeper developers that sort of time forgot. Um, back around 2005, Ilford was actually going to pull most of their powdered um, developers off the shelf. Um, and um, Perceptol was slated for um, being sunset. Uh, but I think there was quite a pushback from the film community, and, and Ilford, uh, God bless them, um, they are one of the very few um, companies in the film world that actually listens to film shooters and photographers and acts on that feedback. So they yeah. actually did not shelve it in 2005, which was good. Um, and back then, a lot of folks were... Um, looking for an alternative, and that alternative was Microdoll X, which I think is an okay substitute for it, but it's not quite the same. Um, no. And Microdoll X tends to leave a little um, sort of brown stains on, on negatives, and, um, uh, and I really do think uh, Perceptol uh, gives a little bit more pleasing, finer grain um, uh, uh, outcome than Microdoll X does. Again, Perceptol is a very, very fine grain developer. Even at stock strength, um, the grain is it's incredibly small. Like you're not going to get a bowl of con- cornflakes out of it if you're in a rush. Um, but as I say that, I want to mention that it is not really um, a rush developer. It does um, it does reduce film speed generally about one stop uh, if you compare it to like any other general purpose developer uh, like XTAL or HC110. You're gonna HC110 XTAL. You're generally going to get it around box. I find XTAL um, will actually give you will actually speed up your film a little bit. So you know um, something to bear in mind. Uh, 
because it does slow the film down a little bit, when I do shoot it with Acros, and I do love the way Acros handles highlights as well, I generally shoot my Acros at um, uh, EI-80. And, oh, it's and, magic at that yeah, with Perceptol. And, and develop it in Perceptol. And the two um, sort of combinations, that little sort of, I guess, touch of pull and slight underexposure, it, it, the, the combination balances out uh, perfectly. And the images that you get out of there are incredible you know in terms of the nerdiness about the developer uh ultra fine grain it's a metal based developer high high solvent activity um it uses um sodium chloride and sodium sulfite for additional solvent action um, which really helps the grain um, in the developer um it is not as sharp as you would find um uh like a more of a standard type of developer uh, like Xtol. But again, you're getting that fine grain. You're not going to get the same kind of accutance that you would out of, say, a quote-unquote general purpose uh, mm-hmm. developer. Um, I find uh, diluting it increases the sharpness and the grain. Being a solvent developer and very similar right. to Xtol, you're going to get that same experience. Um, I like to use it... Um, uh, the box is generally at 1 plus 1. I like it um, at 1 plus 3. Because it still has good sharpness and it's not overly sharp. Like you're not going to get that you know crazy crunch that you're going to get out of uh, like a Rodinol um, or a highly dilute Xtol. Um, you know what? What can I tell you about it? Some things to think about: um, lower film speed, so it's going to it's going to you're going to lose a stop. Yep. So uh, overexpose a little bit. Um, you're going to get fine grain. You're not going to get the same edge sharpness. So the accuracy is going to be a little bit lower. Your contrast is also going to be a little bit lower. So if you do want to bump up some contrast, um, you know, give it a couple extra shakes uh, in the tank. Um, you know, leave it in a bit longer if you want. You'll find the sweet spot and what's pleasing to you with it. Um, you know what? If you're looking for minimum grain, um, that is the developer to use. Um, it's really convenient, mixes up in one liter stock solution and, uh, kind of go from there. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's a one shot, uh, developer. I, I, I've never reused it. I, I wouldn't recommend. Uh, yeah. Reusability, uh, um, your one liter stock solution is only really good for four rolls of film. Yeah. So, and that's four rolls of either 35 millimeter or four rolls of 120. The area size is about equal for yeah. that it is not the cheapest developer in the world so a liter is going to no. cost you around 20 ish bucks canadian so um okay yeah like for one pack i think well i don't know i for, no it's less than is 20 it less, no, yeah maybe it's about 15 bucks. 15 yeah it's not cheap regardless. but still that's not cheap no you know, that that's not cheap and i mean you're gonna get if you do one to three you're gonna get three liters out of it so, uh, you know, I mean, fine. it's decent, but yep. I mean, it's not like, you know, 10 bucks for five liters of X-Tol. So, yeah, um, you really want to use it on films that are or rate your films to 200 or less. Yeah, I found that works best. Um, HP five, you rated it at about 320 Delta 400. You rated it at 200. But once you get to the 100 and lower speeds, you can really get you can really keep your box speeds yeah fine maybe drop it a bit to that ei80 yeah sweet spot yeah and again this is not a developer you want to use to push films with no you will get a bowl of cornflakes if you if you use perceptol do not push if you want to push use microfin yeah 
Well, that about wraps it up for uh, this season. Again, I want to thank everyone who has joined in and listened, all our guest hosts over the course of the year. Now, one big news about season six. We are coming up on our 100th episode not actually, it's our 100th numbered episodes. So through January and February, we are actually going to be having other podcast hosts on our show to talk about their favorite cameras. And we want you, our listeners, to send in a one to two minute audio clip of your review of your favorite camera, which we will be playing as part of our 100th episodes we are also going to have for the first time ever in ccr history giveaways and we will have details on that in january so that's it for me my name's alex lokes i hope everyone has a safe happy and healthy holiday season and that you're able to safely get together with your families and friends and here's to a much better 2021 here here This is James Lee. I hope you've had an amazing um, last uh, bit of 2020. I hope uh, we are are recording this in August, so I'm hoping uh, the next uh, three months um, is great uh, for everyone or has been great for everyone. And we look forward to a new sense of uh, hope and humanity in 2021. And, um, uh, you know, that being said, I couldn't end the year without saying, hey, at my age, I'll take sloppy seconds anytime. (laughs) (laughs) it's bill smith um wishing everyone all the best for the holiday season we sort of made it through 2020 uh mostly intact hopefully you get to spend it with friends and family uh probably six feet apart but that's okay at least you hopefully you get to see them and we'll just keep our fingers crossed that 2021 is going to be a better year this is john meadows thanks for uh for joining us on the ride 2020 has been uh, quite a year. Let's hope 2021 is better. And sorry, I have to finish the season with one more disgusting outro. So why do I use Pirate Cat HD? It's a stain I don't have to explain. (laughs) (laughs) 